0: read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, Um, but I have to confess that this particular section of Scripture is so large in its scope that we could go anywhere in the Bible and be drawn in by where this passage takes us. So as we look at this passage, I I would love for you to just think very big about Scripture in terms of what this says to us, it speaks about a sacrificial system, a system that probably most of us in this room are, are pretty unfamiliar with, a system that was described in the Old Testament, that the people were called to give sacrifices as a way by which to provide some redemption from the sins that the people had committed. So, particularly the book of Leviticus speaks about this system of sacrifices where there would be grain sacrifices and lambs and goats and bulls and um, different sins called for different types of sacrifices. And then we had one day a year called the Day of Atonement when all of the sins that we didn't even know we committed or that were... um, that we failed to give a sacrifice for on that day of atonement. All of those are kind of grouped together. And there was a particular type of ritual that took place to try and atone for all of the sins of the people, all of the ways by which we had fallen short of God's best, of God's call, of God's requirements. And it's almost as if in this brief passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, And spills over into not only the rest of this chapter, but the nearby chapters as well. It is as if the writer just dispenses with all of the Old Testament. It's not so much that it's dismissed, but it is very clearly that it's no longer necessary. Now, you have to keep in mind how startling this has to be to the people who are hearing it for the first time. In fact, it's got to, in many ways, feel like heresy. It's not that the sacrificial system has been taking place nonstop since the time the law was given. There were times when there was no place to offer sacrifices. The temple had been destroyed. There weren't opportunities to offer on behalf of an individual's sin or the nation's sins. But it was part of their culture to offer these sacrifices. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, That Jesus has come to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, so perfect that no sacrifice will be needed again. Makes it very clear. He describes the variety of offerings that are mentioned in the Old Testament. The burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the... Sacrificial, he lists four different types, but it describes for the most part the variety of offerings that were made in the Old Testament. The grain offering, sometimes called a wave offering, that all of those never pleased God. They were required, but it's as if the writer is saying they never satisfied what God required. But Jesus came, and what God desired was obedience, and Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of God. So that when he laid down his life, he provided the perfect sacrifice, because he had followed the will of God perfectly. Amazing proposition that this writer is making it is a description of God's grace because in verse 14 it says you have made perfect those of us who are being made holy it's an interesting notion that God sees you as perfect through the lens of Christ's sacrifice but you're in the process of being made holy. So you're being made holy even though he sees you as perfect right now. I'm not sure I even know how to put those two together. We're going to talk about it a little bit this morning, but that's tough to pull those two different statements into one. But one of the things that I love spills over into chapter 12, verse 15. It says, don't let anyone miss out on grace. That's the admonition. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Don't let anyone miss out on grace, because that's the story here, the story of grace. This is a season of gift giving. I don't know if you have purchased some things to give. Part of our reinventing calendar is to rethink the way we give, to consider fresh new ways of offering things to one another. I just need to announce it, though I think all of you probably know this already, I am one of the worst gift givers. I think I have set the record for the number of gifts that have been returned for something else. (laughs) I work hard at it. I try. I try and listen well through the course of a year. I'll give the gift, I mean, I'll purchase the gift. The salesperson will say, would you like a gift receipt with that? It has come to be where I simply say, yes, please tape it right on the gift, because I know we'll be back in a few weeks. So just put it right on the gift. I don't know why I get it wrong all so often. I know Chapman, we've talked about the various love languages. Gift giving is one of the love languages. It's at the bottom of my list. It's not that I don't try, and it's not that I don't think it's important. I think it's very important. Ironically, I have married one of the most amazing gift givers on the planet. She's incredible in every way. She never misses, it seems to me. If she does, it's only by degree, not by completely missing the mark. I am so poor that I become toxic to the people who try and join me in gift giving. Like, maybe we could do this together. And it goes nowhere. The great example was early on in our marriage, Um, Kay and I decided to work together at purchasing a gift for her youngest brother, Rod. Rod, I think, was in junior high at the time. And here, the worst gift giver and the best are collaborating. We were on an incredibly tight budget, had very little to work with, but we went out to a store and bought a little aquarium, got the pretty stones to put in the bottom, filled it up with water. The nice goldfish put it in. Night before, we just put a little wrapping around it with a little bow. We knew ahead of time we needed a worn rod. Don't shake the thing when you, you know, are fishing under the tree for the various gifts. Christmas morning, a few hours later comes, and he unwraps the gift, and there's the sweet little goldfish floating upside down on the surface of the water. I'm just toxic. I I don't know what it is. Couldn't even return that one. You can't return a dead goldfish. They don't take those back. Well, maybe I could. Okay, well, nice. I have new hope. So gift-giving is not my giftedness. But I look at this season, and I know that we are speaking of the most incredible gift from the greatest gift giver of all time. So I want to talk about this in that light for a moment. This is, in this passage and in this book, the good news. This season we talk about the incarnation, but the message of the incarnation is powerful because it is the message of Jesus Christ coming on our behalf to give of himself that we might have life. It's what we call the atonement. Christ came that we might be redeemed. Redeemed and made holy. I talked with somebody this recently, and I've talked to many people, but it was brought back to memory this last week, where someone expressed to me that it feels as if coming to God means I need to give up who I am and then let God do with me whatever God wants to do with me, that I kind of let go of who I've been and embrace if God wants to send me to Africa or southern Indiana, because they're about the same, I guess. I I don't know, but... (laughs) that I'll have the resources, the gifts, the desire that somehow God will help me survive that. That's not what this gift is. That's not what this is about. God doesn't want you to turn your back on all of who you are. God wants to make holy and sacred all of who you are. The story of Jacob and Esau takes us back to Genesis chapter 5. In verse 29, we have a very interesting thing that takes place between these two brothers. They're a little bit competitive, Jacob and Esau. One has uh, great skills as a hunter. The other has skills that are not hunting, more around the house kinds of things. But Esau comes back from one of his great adventures, and he's starving, and his brother's making some stew in the kitchen. And uh, he's wanting some food and wanting it right away, and Jacob barter[s] with him and says, "I give you all the stew you want if you give me your birthright." And Esau's response is, "Well, if I don't get something to eat, I'm not going to be alive to enjoy my birthright. What's it going to do me? What good is it going to do me? So sure, I'll trade that," and gets his bowl of stew. I know that there's some interesting. Storyline and how this plays itself out over the course of their lifetime. But the tragedy here is the tragedy that's true for many of us. That Esau trades away part of his identity, who he is. He's the firstborn, he's the eldest. There are some in this room who are frustrated at being the firstborn. And all that's put on your shoulders is the firstborn. There are some who begrudge the fact that they are the lastborn and what that means. Some who have fallen in the middle. Some who are frustrated at the experiences of their life's journey. They've compared themselves and their talents and gifts to others and feel like they come up short and wish they had somebody else's giftedness. Compare your achievements to your neighbor and somehow you feel like who you are doesn't measure up, isn't adequate. You begrudge it, you're frustrated by it. Or at some point in your life you have minimized who you are or the experiences that God has brought you through. And for less than a bowl of stew, you have denounced part of who you are. In so doing, you have given up on the God who says, I make all things new. I have come to redeem and give you life, not change who you are, but infuse who you are with a sacredness that transforms it into something powerful, beautiful, and unique that only you can bring to the kingdom of God. No one else can because no one else has what you have. That's why I think the Hebrew writer says, don't let anyone miss out on grace. Because this gift of Christ is the greatest gift of all and it's unique to you. It is the gift that God might take who you are and make it holy. Make it sacred. Make it powerful. Redeem it to hold it as sacred and precious. That's the good news. The problem is that so often we don't share the good news as if it's good news. It seems that so often the church, and I'm included in this, have often talked about the things we shouldn't be doing. Or that we've fallen short and we need to start doing some things because we haven't lived up to what we need to live up to. I grew up with a series of don'ts that are very different than the kind of don'ts that happen today. Lifestyle don'ts that were part of my upbringing that, I'll confess, many of them I still live according to today just because I see some value in them from my own life's journey But they're not the same series of don'ts that a younger generation of millennials call to my attention as don'ts. It's just been replaced by a new set of those kinds of things. I had a wonderful young lady within the last two weeks that posed a great question. She said, so does it matter to you at all what your bank does with the money you deposit with them? Well, I I guess it should. Yeah, it sure does. It's a great question. It's a a new question for me. Probably shouldn't be. It's not the first time I've heard it. I've wrestled with it for a while. But it wasn't until long until my adulthood that I started hearing a question like that and actually hearing it. I had a colleague of mine about a week and a half ago posed to me the question, he said, does it ever occur to you that your incessant desire to buy the goods that you buy at the cheapest possible price has a significant impact on the way in which the global economy forces refugees from one place into another to try and accommodate that driving need of yours? A hard question, probably an oversimplification of economic issues, granted but an important question to discuss and consider and wrestle with and say, hmm, maybe how I live here does have a global impact. Maybe maybe I don't need to travel halfway across the globe to have an impact halfway across the globe. But here's, in the midst of that, very valuable and important discussion, a discussion that I need to have And I need friends that are close to me to pose those kinds of things to me. I still have to raise the question, where in the midst of that is the good news? The good news is that I participate in trying to bring about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, that I care about other people, and that truly is a good thing. But sometimes the way in which it gets communicated is a way that seems... Without grace, without joy, it seems once again that I've created this body of Christ in a way that imposes feelings of guilt, feelings of being overwhelmed, feeling of never getting it right, never measuring up. The writer of Hebrews says, Here's the gift. Through Christ, God sees you as perfect. And through Christ is making who you are sacred, holy, blessed, redeemed, reconciled, and you have the privilege of allowing that to flow through you to others, that you might be the good news. I know I keep referring to Hebrews 12. The passage we're looking at is Hebrews 10, but it points towards some of the powerful things in Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews 12, verse 18, it says, I want to point out that we are not going to the mountain of fear like the mountain that Moses went to where nobody felt like they could approach it. And they would tremble at the voice of God. And if an animal came close and touched the mountain, the animal had to be put to death because the animal wasn't sacred. The people aren't sacred. But God and his holiness is so sacred. And there was this sense of fear and trembling. That's not the mountain that we're going to, says this writer. He says, we're going to the mountain of Zion, the mountain of joy. Now, I know that during this season, it's not nonstop joy for everyone. I know there are people who face very difficult moments during this season. We have a family in our midst to this past week, a family member passed away. Some of you know her, Vicki Campbell what a what a wonderful person. Connie and her husband typically attend our early service a part of all of them, part of a Sunday school class here I'll confess for me Vicky is one of those about whom I didn't realize how much I was going to miss until she was gone because she's one of those individuals who so quietly provides safe space, kindness, a a gentle touch that makes her seem approachable, those kinds of things that make a place feel comfortable to be, and isn't that what church should be as we wrestle with the difficulties of the spiritual journey that you feel safe doing it with people who are on the journey with you? And Vicky was one of those individuals. It all happened so very fast. Diagnosed with cancer that was throughout her body and in a very short time, she was gone. And so this Christmas season, the Campbell family wrestling with what it means to have an empty place around the table. That's not the only family. Some of you would long to be with some family members that you won't be with this holiday season or the gathering won't be as joyous as you think some others have. I understand that. God invites us, even in the midst of that, to depend on God for redemption. That out of difficult circumstances... God brings forth something that's new, that's hopeful. And the call in Hebrews 12, verse 22, is to say we come to this mountain of Zion where it feels like heaven has come down to earth. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the place where thousands of angels have joined in joyful assembly. That's the place to where we're called. Through the gift that's given to us. The gift that you might be uniquely you, made sacred by what Christ has done. Your strengths, your giftedness, your experiences, your interactions, your relationships, your unique place in this world right now. The writer says, God gives you, you. The best you. Merry Christmas. That's the gift that Christ offers. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, this is a season where we have grown in anticipation, anticipation during this time of the calendar where we try to imagine what it might be like to be part of creation that was anticipating the coming Messiah to look forward to this significant day that is the focus of all creation, to somehow join with shepherds and wise men and angels and to anticipate this season with a fresh heart in fresh ways. But it's also, Lord, a season that Seems to have been prolonged, a season where we anticipate your coming again, where somehow sorrow is turned into joy, where injury is healed, where sickness is cured, where loss and grief are somehow filled with your peace and your presence. A season, Lord, of anticipation that seems to have gone on a long time. And at the same time, Lord, you have asked us to be vehicles through which your kingdom comes now. Maybe not in its fullness, but a shadow, a taste of that which is to come. A taste of the good news. Forgive us, Lord, when our approach has seemed to communicate bad news, where it seems like all we talk about is where we've fallen short, where we've not lived up, where we've dispensed guilt instead of anticipation, (laughs) where we've left people regretting that they came across us. Because we harped on things that left no one feeling joy. And forgive us, Lord, as well for the many times for far less than the cost of a bowl of porridge giving away some of who we are. Or we've spoken poorly of our journey and in so doing, we have undermined your capacity to redeem, to restore, to renew. God, help us to reclaim our identity in you. There may be much that we do regret, Lord, but if we surrender it to you, will you restore our joy, our hope, our expectation? What a gift, God, If this morning we could truly receive it. The day when your birth marked new birth in us. Merry Christmas, Father. the greatest gift of all. May it never be returned by any one of us.